The Grassroots Network summer podcast series has been generously underwritten by Turnkey Vacation Rentals. Turnkey Vacation Rentals is the first truly owner-centric vacation rental service now available in the Roaring Fork Valley. We handle all of your short-term rental property management needs, offering superior service and high returns. Turnkey's straightforward pricing and transparent business model make it easier for you to earn revenue from your rental. Proprietary technology provides a smoother, more efficient experience for both travelers and vacation rental owners. Trustworthy, local staff provides support around the clock with true full-service property management for homeowners and their guests. For more information on Turnkey Vacation Rentals, contact Mark Viola at mark.viola at turnkeyvr.com or call at 970-368-4288. Turnkey Vacation Rentals supports the grassroots network in your community. Hello, and welcome to None of the Above. My name is Steve Nemirovsky, and I'm your host. None of the Above is a political program where we focus on why the political system is so dysfunctional and why the political system is so polarized. And in doing so, we always try to offer solution sets, ideas from our guests who are dealing with this dysfunction and polarization and how they're attacking it and how they're solving their problems within the context of this dysfunctional polarized system. So we try to present the problems, but on each show we also try and present solutions. We're very solution-focused on our show. We don't take sides on issues, and that's important today because we're going to talk actually about a somewhat controversial issue. We don't talk about take sides on it, but we do talk about process and, again, solutions for dysfunction and polarization. Each summer here in Aspen, we, there's something called the Aspen Ideas Fest. It's part of the Aspen Institute, and we're so lucky to get many guests who participate in the Ideas Fest and then give us their time. Today's the first in our summer series where we're going to be interviewing Aspen Ideas Fest guests, and that's always a treat for us, so I hope you'll enjoy that as well. The first guest in our Ideas Fest series this year is John Feinblatt. He is uh, one of the founders of an organization called Every Town for Gun Safety, Every Town for Gun Safety. He's got a great story to tell, and again, very process-oriented and solution-oriented. I think you're going to enjoy that. Also, for some of our old-timers that have watched the show, uh, two years ago in Illinois, we spent some time with an organization that was trying to change redistricting in Illinois. Uh, you know redistricting is a very important issue from my perspective in terms of why the system is dysfunctional and polarized. And they tried to have a ballot initiative in Illinois two years ago. It failed. Uh, we studied that initiative at, at, at two years ago. And today we're going to take a look at a new initiative. Uh, some of the same people have been recast, uh, but they're taking another run in Illinois. And this year I think they're going to win. So we're going to take another look at the redistricting problems in Illinois and the ballot initiative that's on the table to try and solve these issues. One of the treats that we have every year is when the Aspen Ideas Festival hits. And it's just a treat because there's so many amazing people that come to Aspen. And we kind of hopefully get our pick of the litter, as they say, and we drive down into who the guests are going to be at the Institute, and then we hopefully write to them and steal their time. I try and go a little bit off topic uh, when the Aspen Ideas Festival here because we have these amazing uh, people with their, with their amazing brands and topics. So we, we cheat a little, but at the same time, we always want to bring it back to process and polarization and 
how to make the system better. And today I think we're going to do a really good job of cheating a little bit and then having some amazing solutions for you to think about. Today's guest is John Feinblatt. He's the president of Every Town for Gun Safety. It's a new, relatively new organization that uh, only has two small problems to deal with. They have to deal with this incredibly dysfunctional political system, and then they have to take on arguably the, the most powerful lobby there is in, in the country. And, and I say that really in an admiring way because I've, I've dealt with people from the NRA back in Illinois. They are ef very effective at what they do. They're very good at what they do. And if, if you want to take on the NRA with your issue, you've got to be at the top of your game. And I think we've got someone today who's clearly at the top of his game. So we're going to welcome John Feinblatt. Hey, thanks for having John, me. John, thanks for being on the show and coming in from New York. Oh, appreciate the opportunity. It's beautiful here. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, people come for about a day and then they uh, stay for the rest of their right. lives like I do. Yeah, well, that's why we're going to see a real estate agent. <laughs> Perfect. In fact, my daughter's interning and she said if she brings in a deal, she'll get a commission. So maybe uh, I should. Yeah, exactly. Get her on the phone. <laughs> Go meet my daughter. Yeah. See, you have an amazing background. And before we get to every town, I thought we could work on your background a little. Uh, uh, really start on court reform. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, uh, we started out in court reform because what we saw was, uh, particularly in the frontline courts in the United States, criminal courts, family courts, housing courts, uh, small-scale civil courts, that they were using the adversarial system, but the adversarial system wasn't actually solving any problems. And the problem with that you see in these frontline courts are the intersection of social problems and legal problems. And so what we felt was that rather than focusing actually on the adversarial process, we had to identify what the problem was and try to solve it so that we would stop this churning and churning and churning that is so associated with particularly urban, large court systems. And you're doing this in New York? And we did this in New York, but we did it all, we ended up doing it all over the country. And uh, I'm not associated with the organization anymore. It's the Center for Court Innovation, but it also has offices actually in Great Britain. Oh, really? So yeah. you've gone international? We've gone international. That's cool. Uh, everybody uh, knows that these courts are not, uh, are dysfunctional. Everybody knows that they sort of are like McDonald's, churning out, churning out, case after case. But those cases just come back and come back and come back because nobody's really trying to figure out the problem. So what we did was we sent, set up a, a not-for-profit consulting firm whose purpose was to really think about how courts can be more effective uh, in these cases. And actually, information is one of the secrets. If you bring more information into the courtroom, give judges more information, give them tools like uh, drug treatment, give them tools like housing assistance, and also require defendants to pay back the community, you can actually be effective. Uh, really, our, our byline was combine punishment and help. And, and one of your goals was, uh, I think in reform, if I read correctly, was to help keep young kids out of prison. Yeah, cl clearly. We had two goals, really. One was to make sure that the community that was victimized or the individual that was victimized had some sense that the system was paying them back, had some sense that there was actually consequences. But at the same time, nobody wanted to see those people back in court again, and nobody really wanted to see them in jail for a very short period of time. And so what we tried to do is design sanctions that would both pay back the community and therefore register with the community, while at the same time give people some of the help they needed. So in, in the past, movements have been sort of one thing or another. 
They've been, oh, let's all sort of pile on services and see if we can stop criminal behavior that way. Or let's focus on punishment. And what was unique about our work is that we actually combined punishment and help. And we found that if you would pay back the community, and it could be simple as community service, painting over a graffitied wall, planting a garden in, in what was before, you know, an alleyway or an abandoned lot. If you could actually pay back the community and the community felt some sense of justice, they would actually in turn be your biggest advocates for helping defendants because they more than anybody thought they don't want to see them back in their neighborhood again. So so at a very early point in your career, you, you have solved a major societal problem or well, solved going along, is, going a long solved, way solved is quite a compliment, but you know, I'm not sure I deserve solved. But uh, it's certainly something that we worked very hard on and the Center for Court Innovation uh, is continuing to do this, as I say, throughout the country and now also in Europe. And so I think they they have begun to think through how to process course these cases in a meaningful way. So somewhere along the line, and I know how the timing works out, Mayor Bloomberg has discovered you and seen you as a problem solver and someone who maybe can take multifaceted problem and find solution sets. Yeah, well, it's a funny story, actually, about how we met. Um, I, one of the things that we had designed as part <clears> of these problem-solving courts, which is the name we gave them, were computer systems that provided much more information than judges actually ever see. And they also had predictive instruments built into them. So, you know, if a defendant matched certain characteristics and the crime was a certain way, you could actually push a button and a judge could see based on data of people who had been in similar positions over a five-year period, what the likelihood of them completing a certain type of sentence was. It wasn't prescriptive. It was just more information. And we also brought in information about their past record and their social service history and whether they had any drug treatment problems. And we used to joke that it was the Bloomberg Terminal of Criminal Justice because, in a sense, it relied on the same proposition that if you you, the more data you have, the better decision-making you'll have. And uh, Mike Bloomberg came to see it one day. And that's actually how we met over a computer terminal. So are you, are you a math geek? or you, what the, How did you become a data guy? They call you a data I'm guy. I'm not really a math geek. I, I don't think any of my teachers would yeah. say I was a math geek. Okay. I think I think that data tells stories. And so I really appreciate the fact that I, if you analyze data and if you look at trends, and you draw on lots of information, sometimes from some unusual sources, you actually can tell a story. And, um, and often, sort of the di next direction or the next step reveals itself. So how did, you, how did you decide that data was in a, a, something worth going after to make solutions? Because you were ahead of your time, yeah. I think. I mean, we've got the cloud, yeah. we've got everything now, but you were there. I guess I'm, I'm somebody who likes to know whether they're making a difference or not. Okay. And so I'm really interested in measuring things. It was never, I was always impatient if I didn't know whether we were actually having an impact. So are fewer defendants coming back to a court system? Is drug treatment actually working? Do, does the community actually appreciate the community service we've designed? And whether through polling or whether through trend analysis, 
I always wanted to know whether we were making a difference. I was never one of those people who sort of wanted to count what you had done. I wanted to count whether what you had done had an impact. So Mayor Bloomberg discovered you and he brought you in his administration? So yeah, in the first two weeks of the administration I joined. And were, did you immediately get into gun safety issues at that Not point? Not immediately. We didn't walk into City Hall thinking that um, we were going to focus on this issue. I mean, we came into City Hall right after 9-11. Our focus was actually making sure that New York, uh, everybody thought New York was open for business. Okay. But part of that is making sure that public safety is attended to because the truth is that public safety actually influences decisions about investment and disinvestment. Right. Uh, but you can't spend much time dealing with crime and trying to crive, drive crime down without sort of bumping right into the fact that uh, there's such easy access to guns in this country. It's just an inescapable thing. And one day, I actually, Mike Bloomberg ran City Hall like a bullpen. So no offices, no partitions even, these small desks. And one day, I rolled my chair over to his and I said, do you know that 90% of the guns that we recover on the streets of New York are guns that are sold from out of state? And he looked at me and he said, so you mean nothing we do matters? And I said, well, I wasn't really saying that. I was just saying, if we're going to become active in this issue, we have to think about it nationally. We can't just think about it as New Yorkers. In fact, uh, my, my roots are in Chicago. We were talking before the show, right. and that's arguably the murder capital of the world right now, and I'm guessing the data is fairly similar there, that whether it's Indiana it's very or surrounding states. It's very similar. I mean, there's no question that one of the problems that Chicago has is laws are tighter in Chicago than they are in Illinois and Indiana. I would put Indiana as a very big number one problem because that's where their crime guns come from, and this is all data that you can analyze, actually. And it's surprising because the other state that uh, uh, victimizes people in Chicago is Mississippi. Isn't that interesting? Really? That for so some reason, pipeline. there's just a pipeline. But Indiana, I would say, is the number one problem. But Mississippi, you know, doesn't trail far behind. Well, there's no doubt. When you, when you leave Chicago, if you're driving somewhere and you have to get through Indiana, you're first going to either counter fireworks or guns. It's very different atmosphere, very different atmosphere. And so that's just the point. It's that you just can't attack these as islands uh, because you have to see the, you have to understand the ecosystem. So you've slid your chair over to the mayor and you've slid your way back and all of a sudden you now have an assignment, right? Yeah, basically that's how it went. He said to me, who are the leaders on this issue, mm -hmm. John? And uh, I said, Mike, there aren't any. So if we want to take on this issue, we're going to lead from the front. And, and again, from being a lobbyist, I know that, and, and, you're, and I said you're up against the NRA, they were such a well-defined brand, and they seem to have cornered the market, so to speak, on their side of the issue, right? No question about it. But there's no one has cornered it on the other no. side of the issue. That so, is. I mean, you know, the political scene, and I'm sure you're pretty familiar with it, is that in 1994, Clinton loses the midterms. House flips. Senate. Was it the Senate as well? I can't remember. But the midterm right. losses right. were pretty dramatic. Right. Um, and everybody blamed it on guns. There was a Senate. Bob Dole. Yeah. Everybody blamed it on guns. Gore's inability to carry Tennessee. Everybody blamed it on guns. And so it actually became part of the DNA of the Democratic Party.
And at that point, nobody touched it. And it was considered the third rail of American politics by the Democrats. And so what happened was the NRA just had the turf to themselves. There was absolutely no friction. And when there's no friction, you just gobble up more. And when the NRA is bullying you or writing you checks or trying to influence you and there's no message on the other side, what do you do? You do the easiest thing there is. You say yes. And so it, it, ha it covered, you know, two decades, essentially, where there was just no friction on the other side, nobody talking about gun safety, nobody saying that they were a counterweight, and the Democratic Party ran for the hills. And the truth is the Republican Party was good on this issue once. I mean, you know, Reagan was good on this issue, and before he was shot. But nobody after Reagan was good in the Republican Party. So you had basically two parties saying the NRA can just have its way with Congress. Well, you had smatterings in places. In fact, Bloomberg helped start the mayor's organization, correct? There's no question. We started to work on it um, while we were in City Hall, and we formed this group called Mayors Against Illegal Guns. And the reason why we formed it was we were trying to figure out how do you stand up a political class on this issue that actually will feel some stake in it? You know, no federal official gives a eulogy. Mayors give eulogies all the time. No federal official loses off their office because crime is out of control. Mayors lose their office all the time. Sure. No federal official that I can recall has ever had to break the news that's going to break somebody's heart by telling a parent their kid isn't coming home again. But mayors do that all the time. They meet families in emergency rooms. And so our hypothesis was that mayors would actually see this issue not through the political lens that people in Congress see it. And so we formed this group called Mayors Against Illegal Guns. And, you know, you have a lot of hypotheses when you're in City Hall, and some are right and some are wrong, and mm -hmm. some you think to yourself, how did we come up with that one? But this actually made sense. This was sticky. Uh, people uh, actually felt like they were being given an opportunity to actually speak out about something in a country that had really forgotten this issue. And so we quickly grew uh, Mayors Against Illegal Guns from about 15 to over 1,000. Yeah, very impressive. Somewhere along the line, uh, Bloomberg's not mayor of New York anymore, and maybe you're looking for a job, and we've got the NRA thing going on over here, and someone has an idea that we need to well, ex extend this idea a little. And So, you know, after Sandy Hook... You, you probably could have had many job offers. I was just... After, <laughs> after Sandy Hook, uh, everybody thought, well, Congress will do something. Yeah. And... You know, we were very much part of the conversation, and we advised the White House, and we advised Harry Reid that the most sensible thing to do would be to put put forth a bill for calling for universal background checks. Forty percent of sales and transfers in this mm -hmm. country happen without a background check. It's really a law that looks more like Swiss cheese than it actually looks like a law. Mm -hmm. You can drive a Mack truck right through it, the loopholes. So... But after Sandy Hook, nothing happened. There was a vote on universal background checks. It failed. Didn't fail by much, but it, in my book, it failed. And and what year is this? This is um, 
probably 2013, okay. I think, okay. but we'll have to check it. Okay. Um, it failed. And, you know, this is a, universal background checks is uniformly favored uh, by NRA members who we've polled, by gun mm -hmm. owners who we've polled, by the American public in general. And yet it fails after 20 kids are massacred in an elementary school. Right. And so for us, we had to take a real step back and we had to ask ourselves, how could that happen? And we came up with two decisions um, that have influenced everything we've done since. The first was to go state by state. And we looked at the arc of marriage equality and we realized that in fact, the marriage equality movement started in Washington and DOMA was in some ways the gift. And at that point, the marriage equality movement really took a step back and said, on deeply held cultural issues, you probably influence Washington and you influence federal courts by showing where the American public stands. And we felt that that lesson probably applied to the issue of gun safety as well. So the first decision was to go state by state, either by ballot or through the legislature. And the second decision we made was to grow the grassroots. You know, we had been working on this issue for a number of years, and there were a bunch of very talented generals. But as it turns out, generals don't do that well without troops. And what this movement was really lacking was people on the ground in every state, in every city, insisting uh, that we pass common sense gun laws. So luckily for us, we met a woman named Shannon Watts, who was the founder of Moms Demand Action. Now, Shannon was a stay-at-home mother of five living in Indianapolis, Indiana. In her prior life, she had been a communications executive with Fortune 500 healthcare companies. But at the time, she was at home, and after Sandy Hook, the day after, she was just angry. And she thought to herself, what can I do? Mm -hmm. And she figured she could do what she knows how to do, which is communicate. So she put up a Facebook page and said, I'm creating the Mothers Against Drunk Driving of gun safety. And when we met her... And there was never anything like that before then? There was originally, uh, many, many years ago, there was the million moms that had been part of Brady, but... At this time, there was really no grassroots to speak of. So when we met Shannon about, I'd say, 10 months later, after she put up that first pa mm -hmm. Facebook page, uh, we were, she had chapters in all 50 states, and we were extraordinarily impressed with what she had done. And we s proposed to her that we actually merge our Mayors Against Illegal Guns with her Moms Demand Action. And in a funny way, it was, it was merging grass tops and grassroots. Okay. And that's what we thought was needed. And that's what gave birth to Every Town for Gun Safety in April 2014. Did the other two organizations still exist? They still exist, okay. but they really are part of this larger umbrella. So the mayors don't have any problem being no, no, part no, of no. The, and Every Town? For each, we keep the brand because some people like being associated with the brand, but it's under the umbrella of uh, Every Town. How important was it to be in a time where the internet has just so fully developed and uh, social media is fully developed and 
seeing a way to combine all that to help develop the... Well, there's the, no question about it. I mean, social media has changed the way we communicate, and you can organize over social media in a very efficient way, and you can amplify messages through social media, whether you're talking about Facebook or you're talking about Twitter or you're talking about other forms of social media. It just helps accelerate it. It helps... Look, I see it as it's just connective tissue. And when you're building a movement, connective tissue is extraordinarily important. So I want to read a quote that uh, Mayor Bloomberg said about you because I thought it was fascinating. He says, I don't know many people who can do regression analysis of gun crime data in Macomb County, and this is the way to say it, develop a national grassroots movement and target races on federal, state, and local levels across the country. So obviously, they, they found the right person at the right I time because you I have brought, a very together, generous boss. brought together these, these talents. But I think all three of these talents are really critical to what you're doing, right? Look, I think that um, there's no question about the fact that I think successful movements combine rigorous data analysis, just like political campaigns do, um, the vigorous use of social media to communicate, and a real policy head to understand um, what actually will make a difference. So, yeah, and no one person has those talents in every organization. I, I would say I'm an appreciator of those talents, and so we've put together, I think, an extraordinary team that has uh, broad abilities. One of the things I think is the most important, going back to lobbying, particularly when you have this pervasive of a topic, is to really define what you're about. Yes. To really refine the message and, and have the educational component. So how did this group come about refining that? And how did you target exactly what you wanted so to talk about? So it is, I think it is really interesting. And in some ways, you know, there were many issues, um, you could argue, uh, on the LGBTQ agenda. But marriage was so important because it focused the efforts. Mm -hmm. For us, from a policy point of view, we are focused on universal background checks. Uh, why? Because 40%, as I said, of transfers happen without them. Because they are overwhelmingly ex favored by the American public. And because they make a difference. And so now 18 states have universal background checks. And you can compare the 18 states that have them to the states that don't. And for example, there in the states that have them, 48% fewer police officer killings with guns, 46% fewer domestic homicides with guns, 46% fewer arrests for gun trafficking. So something that is as common sense, something that's that popular, can actually get very close to cutting deaths in half. I mean, boy, I'll take it. You know, I've never met 100% in, in the public policy arena, but right. when you can actually cut de deaths by nearly half, something to embrace. So one of the time-tested uh, time expressions in politics and lobbying is the other side doesn't want the camel's nose under the tent, so to speak. Do you sometimes feel that's part of what's going on and what you're doing here, that, that the NRA just doesn't want to lose at all? Even if they agree with you 100%, it's just that I can't let John's guys get yeah. their nose under the tent. We can't let that happen. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, the truth is the NRA is getting more and more radical. So in 1999, Wayne LaPierre actually testified in Congress in favor of universal background checks. Now he opposes it. Uh, he testified also around that era that guns should never be in academic institutions. 
Now they're pushing guns on college campuses and guns in K through 12 schools. So they've gotten far more radical, and clearly they don't want any nose under the tent. But the truth is, they're vulnerable and they're being beaten right and left. Um, you know, today uh, the governor of Missouri just announced that he was going to veto three radical gun bills that the gun lobby was pushing. Uh, just last month in Georgia, uh, the Republican governor, Deal, vetoed a guns on college campus that the gun lobby had pushed and was being actually, uh, and made it through the legislature. And so the truth is they're actually being defeated, and not just in blue states. I mean, nobody would say Missouri is a blue state or Georgia. These are both states that actually are quite favorable, uh, in the past at least, to gun right messages. Mm -hmm. but, but states are passing laws that are just common sense. Yeah. I mean, most people actually don't want guns on college campus. So, so you've decided fairly early on that Washington wasn't where the action should be and you wanted to follow this model of getting more local and getting down to the states. Without a doubt. Okay. Look, I think that Washington is broken. It doesn't mean we keep a small office in Washington. We have Republican and Democratic lobbyists full-time in Washington. Uh, we look for opportunities, and obviously this past week in the aftermath of Orlando, uh, we were very active in Washington. We ended up sending a quarter of a million calls into Congress in like a seven-day period. Uh, but I think the action is in the states. I think, I think it's true. We now, as I say, have 18 states with universal background checks. There'll be ballots this year, coming November in Nevada and in Maine. If those both pass, that will be 20 states, and 50% of the American public will then live in states with universal background checks. And so you begin to see the trajectory. So um, these 18 states that you're in and where you're going, are you focusing more on a blue states, let's call it, to begin with? No, actually, we are. We don't have an. You know, we're 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 not looking only for low hanging fruit okay. by any means. I mean, nobody would call Nevada low hanging fruit, and nobody would call Maine low hanging fruit. And we've passed universal background checks. Actually, we're active here in Colorado when it passed it. Uh, we've been in Washington State and Oregon. Uh, we just passed a bill in in Delaware uh, this week. Uh, no, uh, certainly we're in some blue states, but by no means uh, all. We go where we think there are opportunities in a state like Nevada and Maine. Both are states with rich traditions of hunting and recreational gun use. So what, what's making the difference? What is allowing people to get to the center a little more and so I think it's a couple of things. I think the background checks is something that pulls people together. Nobody in this country actually wants to sell a gun to a felon. Nobody in this country actually wants to sell a gun to a domestic abuser. I don't know anybody in this country actually who believes we ought to sell guns to people on the, t people on the terrorist watch list. So background checks I think is something that pulls everybody together. The gun lobby looks just completely out of touch when they oppose universal background checks. Um, and I think that that's part of it. But the other part of it is we've now grown an army of three and a half million who are yeah. actually our grassroots army every day uh, paying visits to their local representatives, uh, making phone calls, writing letters to the editor, 
licking envelopes, active on social media, their voices are being heard. When you can send a quarter of a million calls into sure, Congress sure. in a short period of time, it has an impact. And then have you been active on the political front in terms of identifying candidates to, to run for office and people who are going to be your champions? Is that also part of the program? No doubt. I mean, when we went into Oregon, um, Oregon two years in a row had turned down universal background checks. When we actually looked at the voting record over those two years, we realized that we were only probably two votes short. So we made an effort to support two new candidates who would replace those uh, two people who had voted against universal background checks, and those candidates were successful. And that was very important to us because after that, we were able to pass it the third time. Um, it went up in front of the legislature. We were able to pass universal background checks. And then what did the gun lobby do? They tried to mount a recall of four of the people who had voted for universal background checks, but our political team stayed in Oregon and made sure that uh, the gun lobby wasn't able to collect enough signatures to even mount the recall. Actually, that's where I was going to go next, because I know in Illinois we have a famous speaker, Madigan, and uh, he, is ar he arguably, arguably figured out that no one ever lost their seat in Illinois when he voted for tax increase. So uh -huh. we've had tax increases. Has anybody actually lost their seat by taking any of these votes uh, that you've been working the on? The Oregon example. They haven't, though. No, they did lose their seats. Oh, they did lose they their did seats. They did lose their seats. Oh, I thought you said that you No, no, that's why them. we were able to pass it. No, the first no, no, thing... No, 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 oh, from supporting you. Oh, no, they did. That's what I'm saying. Oh, no, yes, people have lost their seats, but people have lost their seats for voting with us, but no more. We, we learned our lesson. We always keep our political team in place, um, and so we are able to either fight recalls now very efficiently or we'll be there to protect people. We're very clear about that. Um, because we don't want people to be vulnerable because they vote for gun safety. They no, be, no, no. I they ought to be applauded. Right. So yeah. we've, we had one uh, experience where people lost their seats. We regained them within 12 months, um, but never again. Because, again, that, at the end of the day, that's where a lot of the action's at. These guys are in business to keep their seats. And no question the, the about it. The NRA's been you able to, to be will, You have strength. to be willing to protect people. And we protect people on both sides of the aisle. We are a bipartisan organization. Well, I, I, I think it's amazing that uh, this issue has been out there for my whole lifetime. And it literally took, as you said, maybe to 2014 to decide how to do it right, let's say. And they found you, and, and you've built this base and organization. What's, what's next? Is there, a, is there a next here that you can share with us? Or a... Well, the, the big nexts are, um, as I say, Nevada and Maine. These are so the, the nexts are more the same. We're at 18, and we want to get they're, to 50 or whatever. Uh, we're going to keep going in that direction. But there, look, you don't solve this problem only legislatively. I mean, think about auto safety. You had to change the product, right? You had to create incentives for people driving more safely or disincentives for not. And so I think that, look, a large part of the game is in legislation. A large part of the action is going to be in ballots. But I think you have to think more creatively than just that. Um, there are ways to make guns safer. Uh, micro stamping, which imprints on the firing pin, 
The serial numbers show when a shell casing is left at the scene. It actually is a great clue for law enforcement. Uh, I think we can produce better locking systems that are easy to unlock using your thumbprint just like you use your phone. Um, I think there are lots of ways you can improve the product, um, lots of ways that you can actually introduce gun safety as a norm. Sure. Well, I give you credit for going the ballot initiative route because one of the things we talk about here is the system is so dysfunctional and most of the changes rely on legislation. But, but you, you got to leapfrog right over. Yeah, leapfrog right over. Yeah. So, I mean, we, the first ballot we ever did was in Washington State. Why? Because two years in a row they had rejected universal background checks. So you could keep hitting your head against the same right. wall over and over again, or you could say, let's just leapfrog over them and let's show that the elected officials are actually completely out of sync with uh, the citizens. That's so, what we did, and we won by 60%. So I, I know, you're probably not going to believe this. We're already out of time. We could keep going and going, but I know I promised we'd get you out of here. I always like to give my viewers a chance to get involved if they like the guests and they like the organization, et cetera. So how can my viewers get involved in your organization? You said there's things going on in Colorado, for instance, right now. Just go, go on to the Everytown website and sign up. Sign up for Moms Demand Action or sign up for Everytown or give us a donation or join one of our calling programs uh, that we hold, hold every month. There are lots of ways for people to get involved, and people should find where their comfort zone is. But if you go onto the Everytown website, you'll be hooked right in and given a lot of choices. John, you're a great guest, and thank you so much for your time. And oh, all thank you. So nice of you to have and me. Enjoy your stay. Thank you. I certainly hope you enjoyed the segment with uh, John Feinblatt, a uh, fascinating guy, very thoughtful, very analytical. And there's a lot in that interview, so I thought we'd dissect a couple of the pieces, uh, you know, as a takeaway. And we're going to go back to one of our old friends, the whiteboard. But I think you can see that not only is he up against, you know, the, arguably the nation's toughest lobby in the NRA, his, his approach is very scientific. So he talks about, in the uh, video, what a successful movements need in order to win and uh, I thought we'd review some of that and talk about what you need if you're in a campaign you're 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 in a you know political fight and how you're gonna get that victory so let's take a quick look at the whiteboard so in our interview uh, John talked about what is needed for successful movements that's what he calls successful movements but a movement in this case could be a political campaign could be an issue-based campaign it could be almost anything um, and he pointed out that you need three things, rigorous data analysis, social media, and then another part of the interview talks about grassroots, and you need a strong policy head. Now, in the case of every town for gun safety, they've found all this in John Feinblatt. You may not always find this in one person. But in terms of rigorous data analysis, you can see that John is prepared to talk about statistics, literally at the drop of a hat. And when he talks about the world of uh, background checks, he has the data to demonstrate how universal background checks is limiting gun violence. So if he's going to go in and lobby someone, if he's going to make the case, he's got the data to support his position. Two, social media grassroots. Now in his case, he's up against the NRA. They had to build a grassroots organization. They primarily are doing this through social media. He talked about the merger of two organizations. They're now up to 3.5 million members, 3.5 million members for their grassroots efforts. 
And uh, this is being very critical because I think uh, either in an interview or another time I was talking to him, the NRA has maybe five million or more in their grassroots efforts. So if you're going to take on an organization like that, you've got to build up the grassroots. You've got to have the social media. You've got to have a strong policy head. You've got to have someone that really understands politics. You've got to understand how the system works. You've got to have someone who can really hone the message. And as you learned again from John's interview today, uh, they have a very strategic, very narrow message that they're working off of, and they're winning with that. They're not you know, all over the place. They're not scattered. And uh, they have a, a, a very consistent policy message. I also want to drop down and talk about two other things that John mentioned. D.C. is dysfunctional, as we know. Uh, it's probably as dysfunctional as any place. So you have to adapt. And if you can't get your legislation passed in Washington, in this case, you know, uh, after Sandy Hook, uh, a terrible disaster, they still couldn't get anything done in D.C., they had to adapt. They ad adopted a state-by-state -state approach, and then they went to ballot initiatives. So again, you've got to be very fluid. You've got to be willing to adapt. And this, I think, is what gets, what gets back to the policy head part of this. Your policy head has to see where you're going and has to see where the victories are. In this case, going state by state and then looking at ballot initiatives. So again, I thought it would be important to run through some of these potential uh, victory items. And as you're designing your campaign and you're designing your movement, think about how John Feinblatt approached his. And again, we also always want to offer you guys solutions. These are, these are part of the solutions to winning. Thank you. Our next segment, we're going to talk about certainly one of my favorite topics, which is redistricting uh, and the evils of redistricting and how to, how to fix that. As you know, uh, the, the hot button, the, the favorite topic of most people, and we've talked about this, is campaign finance. That seems to be the sexier conversation. Is there too much money in the system? Who gets the money? How they get it? Should it be disclosure, transparency? I'm not trying to say that isn't important. In fact, that's a very important topic. But to me, the, 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 the crux of the problem, if you had to point to one you know, evil in the system and how we get dysfunctional, how we get polarized, is comes through redistricting. A couple of years ago in Illinois, there was an effort started to fix the system in Illinois. And we uh, met with that group and uh, did a couple interviews. Unfortunately, that did not go well in Illinois. But there's a very tenacious group of people in Illinois who, who will, will not be daunted, who are persevering again and trying to get uh, a measure on the ballot for this November. And we're going to pick it up again in Illinois today. We're going to talk about redistricting. We're going to talk about what's going on in Illinois. And we're talk about, as we always do here, solutions. So with us today, we have Dave Millay. And he's the campaign manager for Independent Map Amendment. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. And you got your sign in the background there, so everybody will remember the name of the organization while we're talking here. Uh, how, did, how did you get started with Independent Map Amendment? Uh, I was hired back in uh, November of 2015 to come on board as the campaign manager. Uh, I've been working on political campaigns for about uh, 10 years now. I uh, have a, a several years of experience in Illinois working on state and local campaigns, so uh, they were looking for somebody to head this up, and uh, I've always been interested in political reform, and 
uh, it was a great match. And so far, things are going very well. And at the end of the day, this, this is a political campaign. There is a vote that hopefully is going to happen in November, and you want to win that vote. So you have to design a campaign to win the vote, correct? That's correct. Uh, but there are some ways that we're different than a, a traditional political campaign. We have uh, Democrats and Republicans working together to get this passed. Uh, we have a board instead of a candidate that we work for. So we have a, a, about 35 to 40 person board of people from the business, political, um, and community groups uh, that oversee the whole process and, and are just completely dedicated to passing a constitutional amendment that creates a new redistricting system in Illinois that takes the power from the politicians and gives it instead to an independent commission to draw the political maps. And they, they came together because they want to deal with redistricting in Illinois. Before we get to there, maybe give the viewers just a, a brief overview of why this is a problem. We did a nice feature with Professor Jackson from Southern Illinois University a couple years ago, but maybe if you take a minute or two just to refresh for the audience what redistricting is and then why it's become to be the evil that many people see it to be. Sure. So every 10 years when we have a new census, we figure out where the populations have changed in states. Um, so as populations uh, increase and decrease in certain areas, we need to redraw our political maps so that they're roughly equal in population. Uh, and when that's done, uh, under the current system, uh, the politicians get together, they draw the maps themselves, and then they approve them with very little public input. The last time they did this, they uh, introduced the maps and, and within days uh, approved all the new political maps. Uh, so that system uh, creates an, a conflict of interest because you have the politicians picking their voters instead of the voters picking their politicians. And it also uh, puts a lot of power into the hands of political leaders who mostly control the process, and they're able to use this process to... Uh, to control other elected officials, to the members of their party, and to uh, get them to vote uh, on things that they want them to vote on instead of being more responsive to their own voters. Yeah, we've, we talk about on my show the notion of trifecta states where the governor and the legislature are all one party. In Illinois, the last time the maps were done, it was a trifecta state, correct? Correct. Uh, and interestingly, uh, in Illinois, we have a, a system where uh, if the governor and the legislature can't agree on political maps, uh, what they essentially do is uh, they draw a name from a replica of Abraham Lincoln's hat, and they'll have two names in there, one Republican and one Democrat. And whichever name is drawn gets to decide how to redraw all the maps. Uh, this has happened uh, four times since they redrew the, the Constitution. The only time it didn't happen was in 2011, as you referred to, we were a track where the Democrats controlled all, all three branches, or sorry, the, the, the legislature and the governor's mansion, so they didn't need to go to this backup commission. So I guess, I guess in full disclosure, I actually contributed the last time around. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys hit me up this time around, but I didn't contribute yet, so I, I should put that on the record. Having said <laughs> that, I know, I know why I contributed, and I know why I want the system fixed. Do you think there's a, can you conceptualize, there are two or three main themes as to why your board or all these people are so interested in fixing the system in Illinois? What is, what is it that it's speaking to them that needs to be fixed? Well, our, our state uh, has a lot of major problems. We have uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in uh, unfunded pension liabilities. Uh, as I just mentioned, we haven't had a, a state budget for over a year. We're the only state 
without a state budget in the last fiscal year, um, it, it just, they, there's not able to be a consensus on issues in Springfield because uh, the, the people that we're electing are not directly responsive to, to their voters. They're, they're controlled by their party leaders. And there's a lack of competitive elections because these maps are drawn in a way to uh, help incumbents win and to help guarantee uh, overwhelming majorities for the party that, that draws the maps. So uh, people are fed up with, with the system here. Uh, you can see that in the number of people that just signed the petition itself. Uh, and we know that 64% of voters are ready to say yes to this, uh, according to a Southern Illinois University poll. Uh, so it's, it's, it's people are really fed up with, with the lack of progress in Illinois government, the lack of, of consensus and, and coalition building, uh, and they want to change the system. And, and, and when, when you think of changing the system, and now you've got your board again and you have to decide how you want to change the system, there's different ways to approach designing the solution, correct? So how did you design the solution that you want that you now have in, in language that would appear on the, on the ballot? What, what were some of the themes that you felt had to be addressed and how did you solve that? Well, we uh, based what we're doing in large part on the successful uh, initiative in California. California created a, an independent commission that has an equal number of Democrats and Republicans and also a number of, uh, of voters that don't affiliate with either party, uh, which helps uh, foster uh, a, a, a consensus among the, the, the commission so that they can vote together uh, to approve maps that are fair for everyone. Uh, so we have a, a pretty similar proposal. We, we, we have a system that would end up with essentially four Democrats, four Republicans, and three non-affiliated voters. It would require uh, a certain number of Democrats and Republicans to vote together on any proposed maps. Um, and we have a, a very open and transparent system that we're proposing. It, it starts in the Auditor General's office. Uh, they would solicit uh, uh, applications from across Illinois in California. When they got to this point, they had uh, 40,000 applications. So they would have uh, all these applications, and they, they would come up with a pool of, of the 100 most qualified people. And the 11-member commission would be drawn from that pool. Uh, in a very fair manner. And there, there are some requirements in there that you can't be an elected official or a lobbyist. You can't have any conflicts of interest. So you end up with people who aren't uh, politically motivated but uh, are, are just there to do the right thing. I noticed you have some places where there's some just little old-fashioned pulling names out of a hat. Uh, it, for our system, we, we'd have the, the, the top 100 people, and at that point, to, to ensure that there's uh, uh, fairness here. Uh, the first seven members would just be drawn randomly, uh, and they would have to be a certain number of them from one party and a certain number from the other party, and they'd have to be from throughout the state of Illinois. So they they can't just all be from Chicago or southern Illinois. They, they'd have to be equally proportioned from across the state. And there's a requirement there that, that says it, it needs to be a diverse uh, group of commissioners as well. So we're hoping that they'll be very responsive to the needs of of all, all voting groups in, in our state. All right, so one important element here is how to design your commission, the 10-person ten, ten commission. Another important element is what's their charge? What are, the, what, what, what are they supposed to design by way of redistricting? So where have you put your emphasis there? Uh, they're supposed to design the, uh, the state house and state senate maps. Uh, the first requirement is that they adhere to federal law, the Federal Voting Rights Act, which protects minority voters. 
Um, then there are requirements in there that also allows them to draw maps that uh, maximizes the opportunity for minority voters to not just vote as a group, but also to vote with other groups to uh, elect candidates of their choice. Uh, and there are requirements uh, about uh, when possible, uh, keeping communities together and, and uh, adhering to township and, and city lines so that you have maps that, that keep communities together. Uh, and then I think the most important requirement is that they're not allowed to access partisan voting data, which means they can't look at where the Democrats and the Republicans are and draw maps based on that. So excluding that information, the, the Republican and, and Democrats and other voters uh, politically is, is what makes the big difference here. Uh, they're not allowed to, to, to rig maps for one political party. And I, uh, before we take our interview today, uh, Dave, I did an interview with uh, Professor Yoshinaka, and he and Professor Thurber put out a book on polarization, and uh, one of the articles in there is uh, polarization being driven by redistricting. So I think one of the things, one of the end goals here is to knock out polarization as much as we can, correct? Yeah, we in 2014 we had a, a pretty uh, pretty heated election. Uh, there were many of the problems that we face today in Illinois were, were the same back then, and uh, we had a new governor. A governor switched parties, uh, but only one incumbent legislator uh, was voted out of office. And in we've seen the data that anywhere from about 10 to 15 percent of Illinois voters think that the state is headed in the right direction. So when you have an election in 2014 where uh, only 10 to 15 percent of the voters think that the state is on the right track and you, only one incumbent state legislator loses their seat, that's a lot, that has a lot to do with the way the maps are drawn. And, and that adds to the polarization. When, when, uh, when legislators know that they can go in November to, the, to, to face the voters and, and uh, have very little opportunity to lose, uh, they don't have any reason to compromise. They don't have any reason to work. 2014. Who is they? Who, who exactly is the plaintiff in the case? Well, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, people uh, who are opposed to this process, who control the process, they don't come out directly and say, hey, this is me, I'm against it, and I'm, I'm, I'm financing the lawsuit against it. They, this is a very popular issue with the voters, so people are trying to kind of hide behind uh, different organizations and, uh, and groups. There, there's a group called the People's Map, which has filed uh, as a campaign committee saying that they're they're opposed to this. Uh, they're made up of some business leaders and, and people that have some ties to the state legislature. Uh, and the attorney for them is the, the same attorney as the state Democratic Party. Yeah, right. And I'm not going to try and put you in a box, but I, I can say this because Illinois is my home, and, and I know Mike Casper very well, and Mike is an excellent attorney, and I think he's the lead in this case, if I'm not mistaken, last time Mike was also the attorney, and, and I know where Mike's interests lie. So uh, uh, I'll say that you don't have to. It, 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 this is as much about the Democratic Party of Illinois trying to stop you as, as anything else. But I said that, not you. Fair enough? Well, I, I, yeah, that's fair to say, but I, I also would point out that uh, we do have some prominent Democrats on our board, including uh, former Lieutenant Governor Sheila Simon, uh, Bill Daly. Um, Christy Hefner is very well known in Democratic and progressive circles. Um, and we do have a, a handful of Democratic state uh, representatives and state senators that have endorsed our amendment. Um, so it, I, I don't want to paint with a broad brush uh, the Democratic Party being opposed to this because there are a lot of Democrats 
uh, who've signed the petition and who are uh, endorsing this, who are, are, are saying this is the right thing to do. Uh, and both parties have abused this power in the past. There have been times when Republicans have drawn the maps in Illinois, and they've done so to uh, favor their own party and to make it very difficult for the Democrats to win uh, a majority. Uh, it just so happens that the Democrats are the uh, incumbent party and, and are projected to redraw the maps in 2020, but uh, in 2030 or 2040 or 2050, it, it, there's no guarantee that uh, the Democrats will again control this process. So we're looking to change this constitution uh, for hundreds of years. We're, we we want to change the future for, for all Illinois residents and, and, and have a fair and independent system in place uh, for a very long time. Great answer. So you've got, you've got a tough court fight ahead of you. Let's, let's, let's move ahead, and I'll, again, I'll, this will be me talking, not you. Let's assume you're, you're gonna, you win the court case. Mm -hmm. uh, now we're in July or August or whenever it is. You're on the ballot. Uh, now, now, now go back and put your political campaign hat on here. What, what's it going to take to get victory in Illinois in the fall? Uh, it'll take a, a pretty large-scale uh, public education campaign. So we are going to be knocking on doors. We're going to be on TV. We're going to be on the radio. We'll be on your computer now. That's the big thing is uh, digital advertising and reaching people through Facebook and Google and Twitter. Uh, so it, the, I, I don't think what you'll see uh, as far as advertising goes will look like a traditional campaign, uh, political campaign at least. It's, it's not going to be a lot of mudslaying or, or uh, you know, attacking people. It's, it's going to be about uh, telling Illinois voters what we are. Um, and why this is important. Uh, a lot of voters need to understand the current system, why it's unfair, and then understand uh, the, the fairness and the transparency of what we're proposing. So uh, we're going to do everything that we can to reach the millions of people that we expect to come out and vote in November. So you have to educate your voters not only about the issue and not only vote with you, you've got to educate them to, to, to work their way down the ballot to make sure they get there. Yes, and, and we think a lot of people will get there. It, it's a, a, a pretty, uh, it's, it's a very different process when you have a proposed constitutional amendment. Uh, you have your standard ballot, and then you're going to have a whole separate uh, ballot that, that has a lot of information about the proposed amendment, uh, including the language and, and some arguments that, that favor and oppose the, the proposed amendment. And then you'll have the opportunity to check yes. So I think it would be very hard for people to miss. This isn't like a, a judge. Uh, race all the way down the ballot that people have very little information about. Um, this is going to be uh, something where we're going to spend as much money as we can raise to, to to get information to people. Yeah, are you allowed to give us a sense of how much money you think it's going to take uh, to win this campaign? Uh, it'll take millions of dollars, and uh, you know, so far we've we've raised a decent amount, and we have close to a thousand individual contributors. So uh, we're going to work hard to get people. To continue to give us five, ten, twenty-five dollars, uh, we have lots of those types of contributions, and um, we'll continue to expand our our, our network of, of potential donors, and, and hopefully we'll we'll get a lot of individuals sending us these these small contributions to help fund this thing. Now, now I, I have in the back of my mind that the legislature was also possibly going to put something on the ballot on this topic. Did that pass, or is that still alive? It did not. So they, they had the same deadline to submit an amendment for the November ballot as us. Uh, it was at it was the first week of May. Uh, that deadline passed without them uh, passing any sort of uh, proposed redistricting amendments. So uh, they have not, there, there will be nothing else on the ballot 
that has to do with redistricting in November besides what we're proposing. Well, Dave, you've been a great guest. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of your cause, and uh, I have a lot of viewers that may want to get involved. How, how do they find you? How do they get involved? And at this point, what do you want them to do? Uh, we would love people to uh, visit our website, mapamendment.org. Uh, you can go there, and, and you can click on uh, a link to contribute uh, right there online, or you can find information for mailing in a check. Uh, you could also sign up as a volunteer, or you could uh, uh Follow us on social media. Facebook is, is an amazing tool. We have about 12,000 Facebook followers, and we'd love to have more people following us. Uh, we're facebook.com slash map amendment, and uh, I think we have a similar uh, URL on Twitter. So uh, if you visit our, our webpage, you should be able to access all that information, uh, read up on, on some recent news articles. I should say that <clears throat> almost every newspaper in the state of Illinois so far has editorialized in favor of, of this issue. Uh, so you can read a lot of that coverage, and you can access uh, links to contribute and follow us on social media. Well, Dave, I'm going to tell you something I have not told any guest on my show before, because I usually conclude, and I, and I love my guests, and I love talking to you today, and I always want to have them back. I don't want to have you back, because if I have you back <laughs> on my show, that means that you didn't win. So don't come back on my show and okay. uh, uh, move on to a great victory in November. I won't take that personally. I appreciate the support. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I certainly hope you enjoyed today's show. Our goal is always to educate you, and our goal is to entertain you. Uh, I thought the interview with John Feinblatt was just amazing. Uh, what a talented guy, very thoughtful, very good at what he does, very focused. And uh, I think he's going to give the NRA a run for their money if he hasn't already. Uh, so I hope you really enjoyed that interview. And uh, Dave Millay, who's taking on Redistrict in Illinois, uh, I think they're going to uh, win the battle this time. I don't want to jinx them, but they've, they learned from their lessons in 2014. And I think that's very important for any of you that get involved in political issues, uh, problem solving, uh, particularly in the political sphere. There are going to be losses. You, you're not going to win every time. And what you have to do is learn your lessons from your first battle and then bring them back uh, once you've learned those lessons and then fight, fight the better battle. I think if you scratch the surface of most successful politicians, you'll find that they have lost at least one race. Uh, President Obama lost for Congress in Illinois, and I always like to joke that if he'd have won for Congress in Illinois, uh, he wouldn't be President of the United States. But he lost that race, he won from it, he won the U.S. Senate, and now he's President. So don't be afraid of the fight, and then don't be afraid of losing, and then starting over and winning. It's also a very common path for many entrepreneurs. Uh, for today's homework assignment, because it was the first time that we we're doing the Ideas Fest this year, I'm going to suggest that you take a look at the Aspen Institute Ideas Fest site. I know they post a lot of videos there. There's a lot can be learned, a lot of very interesting speakers, politically in the spheres that we deal in. So take a look at the Aspen Ideas site and see if there's a video that you can learn from. Remember, if you are not part of the solution, you are part of the problem. Thank you. The Grassroots Network Summer Podcast Series has been generously underwritten by Turnkey Vacation Rentals. Turnkey Vacation Rentals is the first truly owner-centric vacation rental service now available in the Roaring Fork Valley. We handle all of your short-term rental property management needs, offering superior service and high returns. 
Turnkey's straightforward pricing and transparent business model make it easier for you to earn revenue from your rental. Proprietary technology provides a smoother, more efficient experience for both travelers and vacation rental owners. Trustworthy, local staff provides support around the clock with true full-service property management for homeowners and their guests. For more information on turnkey vacation rentals, contact Mark Viola at mark.viola at turnkeyvr.com or call at 970-368-4288. Turnkey Vacation Rentals supports the Grassroots Network in your community.